Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we always take a few moments to prepare ourselves spiritually for the study of God's word. Scripture teaches that salvation is by grace. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then at that instant we are uh, given the righteousness of Christ. God declares us justified. We are born again, regenerated, the Scripture says, and we have eternal life that can never be taken from us. But just like a disobedient child can... Uh, do something that breaks his rapport or fellowship with his parents, so as children of God, we can do the same thing. Whenever we sin, that fellowship with God is broken. So we need to do what Scripture says, which is to confess our sins, simply meaning to admit or acknowledge our sins to him in silent prayer. And at that point, God instantly forgives us of those sins we confess and all other sins. We are uh, cleansed from all unrighteousness. This means that, once again, the Holy Spirit is uh, enacting or is acting in our life in spiritual growth. He's the one who teaches us his word. Uh, The word of God, the study of God's word, the spiritual life is all operating under the dynamic of God, the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is a supernatural way of life based on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And when we try to do these things on our own, it just produces As the scripture says, wood, hay, and straw, it's no better than any other human morality. So it's only when we're in fellowship, uh, operating on the power of the Holy Spirit, that we grow, that we learn, that we recall what we've learned and studied in his word. So we take a few moments to have silent prayer before uh, we study God's word, give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, from the time that you created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, you have revealed yourself to mankind. There has never been a time when you have left us without a witness. There are two witnesses, that of the, that unspoken witness that is revealed in creation and the verbal witness that comes through your revelation through the prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament. And yet, down through the ages, From century to century, mankind has resisted, rejected your word. In Israel, they stoned and killed the prophets leading up to the crucifixion of the Messiah that they were looking for, the very Son of God. Now, Father, too often, even today, we as Christians can turn our backs on your word, that we can harden ourselves to the truth of your word, and the warning in Scripture is that we are not to do this, that we are to take heed, to be careful, to be watchful, that we make sure that we are focused on our relationship with you. Now, Father, as we continue to study what the Scripture teaches about volition, responsibility, the hardening of our own hearts by our own rejection of your word, Pray that you would challenge us with these things, expose in our lives the areas of negative volition we have, 
that we may be honest and objective under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to apply your word consistently that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. From the beginning of creation, when God first put Adam and Eve in the garden, the key issue in human history has been that of volition. Volition means choice. It's from a Latin word that relates to the will, and that man has a choice to make in terms of his response toward God. In the garden, Adam and Eve were created perfect. They had no sin. There was no history of sin. They were the original first human beings. And as such, they had a test set before them whether or not they would obey God when God said that they should not eat from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Despite the fact that it was perfect environment, despite the fact that they had the physical, actual presence of God on a day-by-day basis in the garden, with all the evidence that that implied as to who he is and to what he provided, they still disobeyed him in perfect environment. After the fall, all of their descendants have another problem. We have a sin nature. We are born with a bent toward disobedience. We have a predilection towards Uh, rejection of authority, especially the rejection of God's authority. Man is oriented to his own authority and trying to make life work apart from God. That is the push, that's the bent, that's the trend of our sin nature. But God has not left us without a witness to who he is, as we've seen. There's a nonverbal witness in the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. There's the verbal witness in his word. There have been evidences of God's power that have been demonstrated down through the centuries. And yet, as we have seen in our previous studies, uh, from generation to generation, the vast majority of mankind rejects the truth of God and seeks to construct his own alternative reality, creates other gods out of his imagination, creates other gods out of uh, wood and metal and stone, worships them rather than submit to the authority of God. And no matter how strong and how uh, powerful that evidence is of God's existence and his reality, volition is the issue. And mankind, because of our sin nature, Mankind too often yields to that, rejects God, and hardens himself against God's word and disobeys him. Now, we see a demonstration of this in one of its most extreme forms when we come to man's response to the judgments of God during this future period known as the tribulation. And we've been studying this sixth seal judgment now for several weeks in relation to this idea of hardening of the heart because of the response of the uh, group called earth dwellers in Revelation chapter uh, 6, verses 12 through 14. We've seen that the church, the present body of Christ, composed of everybody who has put their faith alone in Christ alone during this era or dispensation from the time of the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles in Jerusalem until the Lord Jesus Christ returns in the air to rapture the church, to take us, uh, take us to heaven to be with him. Uh, so every church-age believer is raptured. Following the rapture, There will be a transition period of unknown length, and then the tribulation will begin, the period known as Daniel's 70th week, or the uh, time of Jacob's trouble. So we have these seal judgments we've been studying, the first series of three series of judgments, and we've been focusing on those. Now, in the sixth seal judgment, we see that there are all these uh, geophysical and astronomical disturbances that take place. There's earthquakes. The sun is darkened. The moon turns to blood. Stars fall to the earth. There is some uh, sort of uh, event in the atmosphere that seems to split the atmosphere open. Mountains and islands are moved out out of their place. There seems to be some sort of massive move tectonic shift that takes place. 
And we haven't studied those yet because we sort of went to the end of the section and focused on the response to this to try to understand it, that all the kings of the earth, the, the rich, the commanders, the powerful, the slaves, the free men, everybody, it's all inclusive, hide themselves from God and look at their reaction. They now understand that these judgments that they've been facing, these disasters that they've been facing, are not the result of the fact that man has somehow uh, destroyed his environment. It's not the result of uh, the industrial revolution. It's not the result of global warming or any of the other ways man seeks to try to interpret present-day events in terms of only physical causality. It is the result of the judgment of God, which is defined in verse 16 as the wrath of the Lamb. And their response is not to turn to God. Their response is to hide from him and call upon the rocks, the mountains around them to fall upon them and to protect them from the presence of him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. And so I began to look at this within the framework of a category of teaching that we find in the Scripture that talks about the hardening of the heart. And I wanted to go through three examples of this because it applies to not only unbelievers but also to believers. And I began uh, several weeks ago with the first example Um, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And I pointed out that even though the text starts off, the first time we see the term hardening of the heart mentioned, that God says to Moses that I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And I pointed out that this has been a, a stumbling block of interpretation for many people down through the ages because it appears at first reading as if God is somehow reaching into the soul of Pharaoh and tweaking his volition and turning it to off and that God is the one who is responsible for Pharaoh's resistance to him. And I pointed out that this is not the case if we look at the broader teaching of Scripture that Pharaoh has already determined within his own soul that he is rejecting God, whose evidence is all around him, and he has substituted it in its place, the worship of creatures. That is the essence of idolatry. Whenever we reject God, whenever we reject his, his word and substitute for it, some aspect of the creation. It may be a physical thing. It may be simply a a mental uh, idolatry. There are numerous Christians who run around generating their own image of who Jesus is and worship that. They don't know anything about the Bible, so they have a They've just generated the same kind of thing that ancient man did. They've generated their own God within their soul, slap a name on it, Jesus, because that sounds good, and then they worship that. But it has nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible because they don't spend any time studying the Bible, reading the Bible, getting to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is and how he has been revealed to us. We cannot worship a figment of our imagination and call it Christianity. We need to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and we can only do that through a study of God's Word. The pattern for the hardening of the heart is laid down in in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, that the wrath of God, that we have that term again, as we'll see, it's a term of the operation of God's justice in human history. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is the predominant response of man to God's revelation of himself to us. And the next two verses, verses 19 and 20, make it very clear that God, the knowledge of God has been made evident to us through the nonverbal evidence of his creation. But not only is it evident to us in this nonverbal external way, it's evident to us internally, for God has made it 
known within them so that they are without excuse, the text says. The interesting thing about that is if you stop a minute to think, is that God has this nonverbal revelation, and he is saying that within every human being, there is the ability to correctly interpret that information, that we are born with our own internal, literal hermeneutic. It has great implication for understanding language, understanding meaning. You can build a whole view of science of language and communication theory just off of Genesis 1 and 2 and Romans chapter 1. Because what God is saying is that this is indisputably clear. Now, you may reject it and try to argue that, oh, it's not clear. Uh, I don't want to accept that revelation. I, I want God to be like I want him to be. And you can substitute your own view, but you've already, the Scripture says, you've already understood the revelation. You have interpreted it correctly but you have rejected what it means and you want to have your own alternate view of reality and alternate view of truth. And this is what a man has done historically in that scene in Romans 1, uh, 21 to 23, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Notice how important gratitude is within the framework of honoring God. Uh, But they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. So see, the darkening of the heart, which is parallel to the hardening of the heart, is the consequence of prior rejection of God's nonverbal witness, what we call general revelation or God consciousness, that there is a rejection that takes place after that, and the result is that their heart becomes darkened. And professing to be wise, they get PhDs so that they can have very uh, astute and learned uh, alternate theories of creation, alternate theories of reality, alternate theories on the nature of man. And the result is that God says they become fools. Because at the essence of a fool is someone who is living in an alternate universe, someone who has constructed their own view of reality and they're living as if it's true. It used to be said that a neurotic was somebody who uh, constructed dream castles in the sky, and psychotics were those who moved in. <laughs> what we see here is that God's picturing every unbeliever as someone who has created this alternate castle in the sky and moved in. And they're all living on this completely false view of reality that is grounded. Notice what the text shows. It shows that it is grounded on their view of God and their view of creation. That's why creation is so important, such a vital doctrine in the Scriptures. This is not something that is just secondary. How you understand creation versus all of the alternative views that are out there, whether they're the uh, mythopoeic views of the ancient uh, pagan civilizations or whether they're uh, defined in modern scientific terms under the categories of of Darwinism or other uh, scientific theories. You have uh, various views that man comes up with to try to show that everything can come into existence. We don't need a god. God says it's all foolishness, and what is happening internally is there's this exchange of the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, I keep reviewing that because it is so fundamental to understand human dynamics, to understand human thought, because once you shift your base of thought away from a creator God who is an infinite personal God, and you shift your base onto anything else, then you start developing a house. You build a house on that foundation, and that house is built on, as Jesus talks about in the passage we'll look at this morning, that house is built on shifting sands. It's built on a poor foundation. And even though the house may be built well, because the foundation is weak, 
it will collapse in any kind of any kind of storm. So we have this picture here, this description in Romans 1 of the mechanics or dynamics of negative volition. That's what preceded Pharaoh's rejection of Moses. He is committed to the gods of Egypt, and he is one of those gods. And these gods of Egypt are the nature gods. They are gods that are depicted through a combination of both uh, human attributes and animal attributes. And so at the very core of the entire Exodus event, the judgments of God in terms of the ten plagues, you see God presenting a polemic, an argument against the religious system of the Egyptians. See, God wasn't politically correct, was he? You know, his, his focus is to show that the Egyptian religion is satanic, it's false, that their gods are incapable of doing anything. God was a presuppositional apologetic, apologist. How about that? That's what, if, for those of you who don't know, that's getting down a rabbit trail, but presuppositional apologetics focuses on demonstrating that the foundation of other people's systems and constructions of reality basically won't hold water, that their houses are built on shifting sands and that they don't really have a right to utilize the arguments or the views or the opinions that they have because ultimately they're based on something that is completely false. We have to start with God's word and then build out from there. That's why Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians that we're to take every thought captive for Christ. It's a lifelong process because we all have these elements in our thinking that come out of human viewpoint and are the result of uh, man thinking independently of God. See, the Scripture is not anti-rational. That's what we get today in a lot of uh, presentations of Christianity is a basically a very irrational a view of God, an irrational view of Christianity, a promotion of mysticism, promotion of emotion over thinking. And yet, again and again in Scripture, thought is emphasized. We are to reason, but we are to reason from the Bible, not reason to the Bible. Man, on the basis of his own autonomous reason, cannot reason to truth because his starting point is something that is independent from the existence of God. So man is to use reason, but he reasons from the word, not to the word. So this is the beginning of this operation of the hardness of the heart. The next example that I looked at last time comes out of the same period of time. The Israelites, as they left Egypt, They were believers. They are depicted as believers. The the use of faith and trust in the book of Exodus uh, is used again and again to depict their trust in God, their faith in God, and yet when things got tough for them, they instead of standing firm with God, they whined and they complained and, and they griped about what God's plan for them was because they were going through more difficulties and they just thought everything ought to be easy because we're God's people, so everything ought to go the way I think it ought to go. And I know that nobody here ever gripes or complains about what God has for you, but they did, and they are warned at that time. Subsequent generations use them as an example to warn us not to do what they did, not to rebel against the authority of God and not to harden our hearts as they did as uh, they were growing thirsty and they wanted water and so they were arguing with Moses, grumbling, complaining against him and rebelling. And so God, rather than turning to God in trust, they turned to Moses in complaint. Moses went to God in prayer. God gave him instructions to strike the rock for water and they called that place, in, according to Exodus 17, Massa and Meribah. Massa meaning testing, Meribah meaning quarrel. That is a key event because it's picked up in Psalm 95, verse 8, with the command, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness. And the command there is to believers. It's picked up again by the psalmist here, and he applies it to believers. Don't do what that earlier generation did. And see, this can happen to any one of us. 
we can become complacent in our walk with God, we can become complacent in our spirituality, and we can uh, harden our own hearts against the voice of God. And so this is picked up in the New Testament by the writer to Hebrews, and in three places, Hebrews 3.8, Hebrews 3.15, and Hebrews 4.7, he warns those to whom he is writing that when you hear the voice of God today, do not harden your hearts as they did at Massa and Meribah. And he quotes from Psalm 95 three times addressed to believers, and this is the warning to each of us not to uh, let ourselves become hardened by the deceitfulness of the world system, by the deceitfulness of the world around us. So hardening has application to believers as well as unbelievers, and it is one of these uh, very subtle, deceptive things that we can easily slip into when we continue to read our Bible or go to Bible class or listen to uh, any kind of Bible teaching and media, and yet what happens is we slip into a subtle complacency. We begin to lower our guard and become relaxed. We get involved in self-absorption and arrogance, and the next thing you know, we're just not at Bible class as often as we were. We don't have that priority in our relationship with God that we once had. And five, six, ten years down the road, all of a sudden we realize that we're under divine discipline and our life is a mess because we have turned against the God who provided for us. Anyone can do this. Now, the picture we have in Revelation is of the unbelievers. I've talked about the fact that this category called earth dwellers doesn't refer simply to unbelievers because there are many at this early stage of the tribulation who are unbelievers who will trust in Christ throughout the next six years. They will become saved. But there is one group that is hardened, one group that never will respond to God's gracious calls to, to salvation, and this is the group that resists and resists and resists, that no matter how much evidence they have, they reject it because it doesn't fit their prior commitment of autonomy, independence from God, the orientation of the human heart. Now, there is one other passage, one other event that I want to go to to illustrate the hardening of the heart, and this has to do with a Another generation of Israelites, the generation of Jews that existed at the time of the Incarnation. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to look at a passage that is one that confuses a number of people. Every now and then somebody will ask a question, well, uh, is there an unforgivable sin? What is the unforgivable sin? Can I, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And there are all kinds of ideas as to what the unforgivable sin might be. And it's important to pay attention to the context of Matthew chapter 12 so that we can understand what that this unforgivable sin is that is uh, described by our Lord as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, there have been some interesting interpretations of this passage, and there have been some rather strange interpretations of this passage. The strangest I saw was that John Nelson Darby, who was the first uh, theologian to really clearly articulate uh, dispensational theology in the pre-trib rapture, identified the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as having a professional clergy. He was reacting to the apostate clergy in the Church of England in the 1820s and 1830s, and he identified that as the problem. I thought that was one of the more bizarre interpretations I read. In the early church, they often would identify it as simply apostasy. Well, you'll find a lot of people think that today, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit's apostasy. Uh, Sometimes they would identify it as certain sins, certain kinds of immorality, When you get a little uh, further down the road in early church history, you have Augustine who thought that this was only a sin that you could commit at the end of your life. If at the end of your life you turned against the Lord, then that was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that was the unforgivable sin. Others think that the unforgivable sin is not believing in Jesus Christ, that that sin can't be forgiven. 
And that's an interesting thing, because if Jesus died for all sin, then that means he died for the sin of unbelief. Hmm. So how come people are condemned? Well, we'll talk about that. So there are these different views on what the, this uh, unforgivable sin is and the, bap- and the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, to understand what's going on in Matthew chapter 12, let me just read the passage to you. I'll put the key verses up here on the overhead. Jesus, as he has done on numerous occasions prior to this, is going to cast the demon out of a demon-possessed man. Now, demon possession is a situation when a demon, an evil spirit, one of the fallen angels, that's who demons are, when a demon takes up residence inside the body of a unbeliever. can't happen to a believer. If you have questions upon that, I've got a whole book on spiritual warfare where I deal with that, and you can pick that up and read it. But this applies only to unbelievers. It is a reality. This is not just some sort of pre-scientific explanation for mental illness or mental disease or some sort of superstitious way that they had in the first century to try to explain uh, certain kinds of physical maladies. It is a reality. You don't have any demon possession in the Old Testament. There's very little after the resurrection of Christ. There's a couple of examples in Acts, but by the time you get towards the ends of Acts, this seems to be disappearing. It's because during the period of the Incarnation, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, is invading the earth, as it were, in order to offer his kingdom to establish it upon the earth. And this has all has Satan all churned up, and it has the demons all churned up, And so there was this excess of demonic activity during this particular time because the king was offering the kingdom in history. And so during this time, there were many examples of those who were demon-possessed who came to Jesus and he uh, cast out the demons. He didn't exorcise them. The English word exorcise comes from a Greek word exorkizo, which is used only of the pagan practice that was carried on in the ancient world. It's never used of what Jesus and the disciples did. They cast out demons, a completely different uh, Greek word, and the two were never confused or used synonymously. So this is a demon-possessed man who's blind and mute. He, he uh, He can't see, he can't talk, and he comes to Jesus, and Jesus healed him. Therapeuo is the Greek word there where we get our word therapeutic. He's not a psychotherapeutic healer, though. He is, it's simply a Greek word for, that is a very broad word that was often used to, uh, as a synonym for casting out demons. As a result, the mute man spoke and saw God, uh, I mean, Jesus Christ, after casting out the demon, the man has an immediate change. It's not a slow, gradual process because he sat on a psych- psychotherapeutic couch for six years and finally got healed. Uh, verse 23, all the crowds were amazed. They've never seen anything like this. And they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They understand from the Old Testament that casting out demons in this manner is unique. It's not like anything that the Pharisees are doing or or any of the other religious leaders. This is unique, and based on the Old Testament, this is a unique credential of the Messiah. But Pharisees don't like this. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, no, 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 this man's not the Messiah. He casts out demons only by Beelzebul. Beelzebul was a... Uh, just a pejorative nickname they had for Satan. They cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, we skip down. That's the incident that occurs in Matthew 12. Skip down a few verses, and Jesus is confronting what they've done, and he says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit, which is what the... Pharisees have just done by accusing Jesus of casting out demons in the power of Satan. Uh, in other words, saying it's not the spirit, it's, it's Satan. 
Blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man. Now here we have two different titles, two different messianic titles in this chapter for Jesus. Son of David indicating his descent from King David, indicating that he uh, was the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant uh, promise. And Son of Man indicating he's the one who will come to rule and establish his kingdom. It's a title that comes out of Daniel chapter 7, prophecy about the final kingdom of God established on the earth that the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gives him a uh, title deed to the earth, and the Son of Man comes and establishes his kingdom. That's the picture that we have in Revelation chapter 5, the Lamb of God taking the seal, and then he's opening the seal, uh, the seven-sealed scroll, rather. He's opening that in Revelation chapter 6, and this all ties together. So what Jesus is saying here is identifying himself as the Son of Man, that he's the one who is, he, at this point in Matthew, he's offering the kingdom, and he's the one who has the right to demonstrate his credentials as such, that he is the authority over everything, including uh, the demonic realm. So Jesus says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, as we look at this, we need to put this within the context of Matthew, within the context of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It's the same is true for the parallel Gospels known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're in Matthew, so I'll primarily focus there. What we have in these Gospels is that each writer of each Gospel has a particular focal point that he's honing in on in relationship to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are essentially presenting him him in a certain way, and they are organizing their material about Christ's life in order to, to prove their point, in order to demonstrate their case. And the case that Matthew is making is that Jesus of Nazareth has the uh, credentials and has the... Uh, has the background, the ancestry, everything in order to be the promised Messiah, that he is the king who came to present the kingdom and his message, his offer of the kingdom was rejected by the nation, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. These represent the the nation as a whole. They are the leaders, and it is their corporate rejection of Jesus' offer of the kingdom, that is the issue. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of individual Jews who trusted Jesus as Savior, but because the nation as a whole rejected him, rejected his offer, that offer, that kingdom uh, is postponed. That's the bird's eye view. In Matthew chapter 1 through 4, we have the... uh, coming of the king presented. In Matthew chapter 1, we see the ancestry of the king showing that he is related to David and he has uh, that background so that he is credentialed in terms of his ancestry to be the promised Messiah. Matthew chapters 1 through 4, we have his ancestry, we have his coming at his birth in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 3, we have the fact that he is announced by uh, John the Baptist as the one who will come, and he is uh, validated at his baptism by God the Father who speaks from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. So this demonstrates who he is. Then starting in Matthew chapter, and then he has, has further has the challenge in the uh, desert where he is tempted by Satan, by the accuser, by the adversary, and he shows that he has the ability to withstand the temptation unlike the first Adam, and he is, he is able to trust in God and apply his word correctly. Sorry, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, he confronts the religious interpretation of the Mosaic Law. This is a crucial passage known as the Sermon on the Mount. 
And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you cannot see the kingdom of God. And what he is doing is he is challenging the religious interpretation of that, of the religious leaders that people could become righteous through their overworks, through their deeds, through their ritual, and through their religious observance. See, that's another way in which people, earth dwellers, they're a type of earth dwellers, earth dwellers can uh, suppress the truth and unrighteousness is through morality and through religion, thinking that they can do deeds that are good enough to merit God's favor, to merit God's righteousness. And so there is a, a challenge, an implicit challenge to the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see uh, the kingdom of God. This is his uh, main point that he is making, and he contrasts what he is saying to that of the religious leaders. Again and again in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses this terminology where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. See, you have heard it said. That's what the Pharisees taught. But I say to you, that is his authoritative interpretation and application of the Mosaic law. And when you come to the end of chapter uh, 7, in the last two verses, we read, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So it's clear that there's this juxtaposition that is taking place. And then in chapters 8 through chapters 11, we see Jesus presenting his credentials. And if you just read through this section, he is presenting different credentials related to Old Testament prophecies. In fact, the rabbis understood that uh, two things were, would be a unique qualifier for the Messiah, that he would heal a leper and that he would heal someone who was born blind, that only the Messiah could do this. And among these miracles that Jesus performs between chapters 8 and chapter 11, we have these uh, two uh, distinct miracles. The first one that's mentioned in chapter 8 is that he heals a leper in the first four verses. And then he uh, goes to Capernaum and he heals a uh, centurion's servant from a distance. And he makes a point there related to Israel that he hasn't found faith among the Jews like he does among this Gentile centurion. And then he states... I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom, a term related to the Jews who have the birthright to the kingdom, that uh, many of them will be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this kingdom theme runs through uh, this period. He heals in Capernaum. He heals a paralytic and says, first of all, that his sins are forgiven. And as a result of that, the conflict with the religious leaders increases, and they accuse him of blasphemy. In chapter 9, verse 3, uh, some of the scribes said within themselves, so they're thinking that this man blasphemes because he says your sins are forgiven. And Jesus confronts them because he knew their thoughts and said, why are you thinking evil in your thoughts? So the opposition increases. And then he calls Matthew who is the author of this gospel. He is a tax collector. Nobody, he's Jewish, but nobody was considered uh, more of a traitor to uh, their people than those who had hired themselves out to the Romans to collect taxes. You think you despise IRS agents? Guess what? IRS agents are golden, fair-haired boys compared to the way the Jews viewed these tax collectors. And so Jesus calls Matthew, this horrible tax collector, to be one of his disciples, goes to his house, and has a party, socializes with the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees in their pseudo-righteousness and their hypocrisy react to that. And they uh, said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors 
and with sinners. So there is this increasing opposition to him. And Jesus continues to heal. He continues to um, give sight to the blind, Matthew 9, uh, 27 and following. He gives sight to two blind men uh, who come to him for uh, healing. He heals the mute. He casts out demons from numerous people. All of these are cataloged through chapter 11. And this is to show his credentials that he fits the pattern described in the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah, that the Messiah would do all of these things, that he would give sight to the blind, that the lame would walk. And so Jesus demonstrates who he is. And then you come to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 begins with another confrontation with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are getting extremely upset with him. There is a, uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke, there are some episodes that are described there that are not included in Matthew's Gospel. And in, prior to the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit passage in Luke, uh, Jesus pronounces a woe against the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 and following. He says, um, says, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean. And he continues to challenge them. And the result in verse 53 of that chapter, and as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. They are beginning to uh, exercise their opposition to him because they do not uh, he is challenging their authority and their position over the Jews. Well, in chapter 12 of Matthew, we have the initial incident where his disciples are picking up grain as they walk through a grain field on the Sabbath. And Jesus shows that this, there's a pattern for this, why it's legitimate, going back to an episode in 1 Samuel 21 when David went to the uh, tabernacle. We taught, I taught on this on Thursday night. He goes to the uh, tabernacle and the pre asked the priest for the bread that's on the table of showbread because his men are hungry. And David is the Lord's anointed, and so the priest uh, makes an exception because of the principle of grace and mercy. And that's Jesus' point is that to them is, haven't you read that God desires mercy over sacrifice? And so they miss the whole point of grace orientation. And then he heals on the Sabbath in verses 9 through 14. And the result of that in verse 14 is that the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. In fact, Luke 6 verse 11 says that they were filled with rage. So the religious establishment is has rejected Jesus and they're hostile to him. And it is in that context that we have the episode in Matthew 12 where he casts out uh, the demon. And now they're going to accuse him not of being the Messiah, but of being empowered by Satan. And that is the unpardonable sin. And it is and could only be committed at that time in history because it is a sin, a national sin, where the nation is has come to a point where they are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. And th- this marks a turning point. You see it in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, that from this point on, when Jesus is accused of performing his miracles in the power of Satan, Jesus begin- no longer offers the kingdom to the nation. He begins to train and teach his disciples in light of what is going to happen, that unannounced church age period we're now in. And so there is a shift in his strategy and his approach. So when he's talking about forgiveness in verses 31 and 32, he is not talking about justification salvation. 
he is talking about the fact that this is a, an irreversible hardening now that has occurred among the leadership and that the die is cast for judgment on the nation because they have rejected Jesus as Messiah. They will take him to the cross where they will crucify him. The kingdom is going to be postponed. And because of their rejection of Jesus, because they have hardened their heart, it will result in God fulfilling his promise in Leviticus chapter 26 that when Israel goes through these series of stages, five different stages or cycles of discipline or outline, that when they get to the most extreme form of discipline, they will be removed from the land. This happened two previous times in history. In uh, uh, 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated by the Assyrians, and they were deported from the land. And then... Uh, some 140 years later, in 586, the Babylonians came in and destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, and the, many were taken in exile into Babylon. And then there's a return that occurs some 70 years later, starting about 537, but it's only a partial return. It's only a partial return from Babylon, not from the four corners of the earth. And it is a partial return in order to have a nation established in the land to whom the Messiah can come. And so Jesus comes to that nation, that small group that is in the land. And at the time, more Jews were living outside of the land of Israel than were living there. It was just a small group that had returned during those previous uh, three or four centuries. And if they had trusted in him, accepted him as Messiah, then he would have brought in the kingdom. But because they rejected him, the kingdom was completely postponed. And what we have is an unannounced period in terms of the Old Testament prophecy known as the church age. But God is going to, uh, God is going to eventually fulfill his promises and bring the Jews back to the land. I have a couple of pictures here indicating the judgment that occurred in 70 A.D. This is a picture. The wall on the right is called the western wall of the temple. It was a retaining wall. It's not one of the buildings. When Jesus said, I will leave, no, no stone will be left upon another, he was talking about the temple buildings. This was simply a retaining wall on the western side of the temple mount. In the distance, uh, you have the section uh, known as the Wailing Wall. In the foreground, you have a pile of rubble, a pile of rocks, and these, this pile has been there since the Romans uh, destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. So that bears witness to that uh, destruction, the fifth cycle of discipline that occurred at that time. The temple was uh, burned down and destroyed, and the articles of furniture in the temple were taken back to Rome. Here is a... Uh, the sculpture on the side of the Ark of Triumph that Titus had built to celebrate his victory over Jerusalem. And you see them carrying the menorah, the candlestick, in the uh, triumphal march into uh, Rome. And that is a depiction of this. So this is what was fulfilled. That's what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and the unforgivable sin pictures. It's the national sin of Israel in rejecting Jesus as Messiah. And even though they've hardened their hearts as a nation, there's still many, even many Pharisees still trusted Christ and could be saved, but the judgment against Israel was set. There was still an offer. Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Repent, the times of refreshing will come. Acts chapter 3, continue to offer all the way up to the time of the Jewish revolt in 66 that God continues in his grace to offer. But what happens once man has hardened himself in rejection of God is that God's gracious overtures simply become an opportunity for them to intensify their hatred of God. We see this in Revelation. Revelation 6.15 is a passage we're talking about, the kings of the earth, etc., Go hide themselves among the mountains 
to hide from the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God for their great day of wrath has come and who is able to stand. We have further examples as you go through the tribulation period. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, that's the second series of judgments, the trumpet judgments, did not repent of their works of their hands so as to not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. See, some people aren't going to be convinced by anything. The Pharisees weren't convinced by Lazarus being raised from the dead. They weren't convinced by Jesus being raised from the dead. Uh, in the future tribulation period, those divine judgments, they come again and again and again. Those who reject God are going to harden themselves against it. It's not a intellectual problem. It's not an IQ problem. It's a volitional issue. And they have set their heart against God. Uh, Revelation 16.9. I mean, we just can't imagine this, that in spite of all this evidence, why do they continue to shake their fist at God? Revelation 16.9. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. That's Revelation 16.9 and 11. And then in verse 21 of that chapter, Huge hailstones, about a 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. This fulfills a prophecy from Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 10 states, Many will be purged, purified, and refined. Those are the believers, those who respond to God's grace in the tribulation period. But the wicked, that is, unbelievers who are mired in the rejection of the gospel, who have hardened their hearts, will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight, that is, believers who trusted in Christ, will understand. And so, this is a picture of the hardening of the heart. And the warning for us from Hebrews is that just because you're a believer doesn't mean you can't do that. Now, you can't lose your salvation, but you may put your future inheritance in jeopardy in terms of your position, ruling and reigning with Christ. You will come under severe divine discipline in this age. There is a real warning there in Hebrews not to harden our hearts when we hear the word of the Lord. And that is why it is important for us to consistently be in, in the word, reading the Bible for yourself, listening to Bible classes through the various uh, ways that we have it out there on the Internet in terms of various kinds of media. But the only thing that really matters in life is our relationship with God and our response to his word. Because when that time comes that we die and we go to the grave, the only thing that we take with us is the spiritual maturity that develops in this life. That's the only thing that goes with us into heaven. And that then becomes the basis for our uh, rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So we need to be careful, as long as it is called today, to not harden our hearts as the Jews did at Massa and Meribah. Let's bow our heads together and close our eyes in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study through this teaching and the hardening of the heart that, to recognize that for unbelievers this can be uh, result in the tragedy of their rejection of you, their rejection of all that you could give them, and in the intensified judgment that they will receive. But for those who are believers, there's also the danger of treating you in a complacent manner to take your word lightly and not to treat it with the sense of priority and urgency that it demands. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today, that we might take a fresh look at our own priorities. But, Father, we pray, too, for anyone here who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to put their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Lord Jesus Christ died on the penalty for all of your sins. They're all paid for. Even the sin of unbelief is paid for. Because the issue is whether or not you trust in Christ. The issue is whether or not you have the righteousness of Christ, whether or not you have new life in him. So all your sins are paid for, even the sins of unbelief. 
But the issue at the great white throne judgment is going to be whether or not you have life and whether or not you have the righteousness that is commensurate with God's righteousness. And the only way we can get life and righteousness is by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the basis of condemnation, as John says in John 3.18, is because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We're not condemned for our sins. We're condemned for a failure to believe because what comes with belief is what is necessary for salvation. That's righteousness and eternal life. Spiritual death being transformed to spiritual life. And so all your sins are paid for. The issue now is whether or not you will trust in Christ. You can do so right now, right where you say, God knows what you're trusting in. At that instant that you believe in Jesus, believe that he died for your sins. At that instant, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would not let us forget the lessons we've studied as we go through these uh, chapters in Revelation, recognizing the important lessons there for us in our day-to-day spiritual life today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.